Hello. This edition of Health on the Line will, I think, illustrate a number of themes. The impact a determined individual can make. How we can and should try to learn from adversity. The importance of the experience and voice of the patient. The focus of our conversation today is patient safety. It's part of a series we at the CONFED are delivering in collaboration with NHS Supply Chain. And there's more detail on our website. But now it's time to hear from a pretty remarkable campaigner and reformer. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. I'm joined by patient advocate Susanna Stanford. Following a traumatic personal experience in 2010, Susanna became interested in patient safety. She's spoken about her experience, contributed to patient safety research, campaigned to engage medical students and clinicians in how to manage adverse events and how patients and clinicians need support in the aftermath of things going wrong. Amongst other things, Susanna is an ambassador for the Clinical Human Factors Group on the Harmed Patients Alliance Advisory Group, and she's also on the steering group for the UK Obstetric Surveillance System and the National Safety Standards for Invasive Procedures. So, Susanna, welcome to Health on the Line. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. How are you this morning? I'm very well. The dogs are all quiet, so I'm hopeful that we'll have a good chat. Yeah, well, I've got dogs here as well, so let's hope your dogs don't set off mine and vice versa. Um, so take us back to 2010 and the incident, if you don't mind describing it to us, that changed your life, I guess. Yes, it did. So I already had one son. I'd had a straightforward pregnancy and delivery that time. Second time round, I needed a C-section for my second son because I had an anterior placenta previa. And it was explained to me that that was higher risk. And, you know, it's really important to emphasize that that was life-saving surgery. However, unfortunately, I experienced spinal block failure. So I was able to feel major abdominal surgery, which is every bit as horrific as it sounds. It was very traumatic. Um, my fear was focused on my child whilst I was experiencing pain that I perceived as life-threatening. The operation was stopped three times and eventually I, I had a general anaesthetic. Now afterwards it wasn't handled well by the anaesthetist and the trust and I left hospital with a standard discharge note which stated I'd had a routine c-section under regional anaesthetic. Um, that meant that when I tried to mention it to my community midwife, she saw nothing on my notes and thought I was making a fuss about nothing. I said, oh, never mind, dear, the baby's all right. That's all that matters. So it was 10 months later that I, I went to my GP because I was really struggling to engage with life. I had, of course, developed post-traumatic stress. And it was only when I told her that she knew I'd had a general. And just knowing I'd had a general would have been a clue to her that something hadn't been straightforward. Now, she wrote to the hospital asking for access to my notes and received a response back that stated I had been conscious and comfortable at the time of my son's birth. Now, of course, had I been comfortable, there would have been no need for a general anaesthetic. So it was a really difficult situation to be in. And she was emphasized to me that the adversarial route was very stressful. And I didn't want to go that way. I mean, I'd, I'd already said I didn't want to complain. I just wanted there to be learning and I wanted to understand myself. But the defensive response from the trust made that difficult. 
However, I became aware that other women had similar experiences. So I created a survey. I had 150 women respond in their own words, highlighting the same issues I had identified. And they were all over the country. And that was very interesting because it then meant I no longer had one trust to contact. So I did the only thing I could think of, which was to write to the president of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. And to his immense credit, he responded in under two hours the Sunday before Christmas and invited me to go and meet with him. He put me in contact with the Obstetric Anaesthetists Association And long story short, we've now got guidelines for testing and managing regional anaesthesia for C-sections. Well, that's uh, amazing. In that period after what happened to you, were there moments when you just thought, actually, I want to try and put this behind me. I'm not going to do anything about it. And what were the factors that gave you the determination to, to carry on and to create in the end, the kind of movement and the momentum which has led to change? It's, it's a really interesting one because I have had so many people say to me, goodness, why don't you just put it behind you? You know, just, you know, you're never going to get anywhere. And I simply refused to take that answer. Yes, in part, there was a really clear sense of injustice at it. But the really big thing was that I appreciated that I was in a privileged position. I felt that I was able to approach medics as sort of at an equal level, I suppose. And I was really, really concerned about what would happen to someone who was more vulnerable than, than I was. You know, so girls who were too young, women uh, you know, not in their first language, um, you know, women who've been raped or abused. You know, if it had almost broken me, well, what for them? And that has always been, you know, the motivation. Because at the end of the day, it was never going to change my outcome. It was about everyone else. And how did the experience and what's happened since, how has that shaped your, the kind of principles that you bring to the idea of patient safety? So I think it's really important to say that I always believed that harm hadn't been intended. And, and I think understanding good intent should be the starting point for any conversation on patient safety. So keeping that in mind, I've always been very driven by trying to understand why things happen. I found that if you really work to understand what's going on and why, you know, from the clinician perspective, and then you connect it to the patient experience and explain that to clinicians, it's really powerful. Um, So you're basically working with two different groups, frames of reference and and explaining them one to another. The two things that have really stood out for me in the process of talking about it to clinicians, I mean, the first time I spoke, it was the biggest obstetric anaesthetist conference. Uh, There were 600 or so anaesthetists and me, and it felt somewhat gladiatorial going in. But I learned that... I was speaking in front of people who included mothers who'd had their own traumatic deliveries and fathers who felt they'd let their partners down. And it was very, very humbling to be reminded of our shared humanity. And that's really stayed with me. And the second thing that's stood out for me is just how willing people are to learn. So 
if I go back to the 18 months after the first couple of times that I spoke, I asked the Obstetric and Aesthetics Association if we could survey the people who'd been present to see what impact remained from me talking. And a little over the half the consultants had refined their own practice. And 70% had changed what they taught their trainees. So on the one hand, I had made them reflect about their practice and there was a tremendous willingness to learn. But on the other hand, I could see that clinicians cared deeply about providing good, safe care. And that understanding has driven much of the work I've done in patient safety since because it's been as much about keeping clinicians safe as it has been about keeping patients safe. So I'd like to pull out a couple of, of, of themes of that a very kind of eloquent account that you've given, Susanna. So the first is, it, it seems natural, doesn't it, that a mistake, an adverse experience is an enormous opportunity for learning. And that's how we're encouraged to think about our lives. But as Matthew Syde has said, he wrote a whole book about it, different cultures, different industries treat this differently. And one of the reasons, for example, that aviation is so safe is because of the black box system, which says we have to design things so that we can learn when something goes wrong and that we will share it with everybody in the world so everybody can learn. And I think, you know, Matthew says that that's unfortunately not the case in health, for example. So given how obvious it is that we should learn from adverse experiences, from mistakes, from tragedies, why is it not always the case? What, is, what stands in the way of turning these things into learning experiences? Fear. It's about... Um... What have you got to lose? And when people feel they have something to lose, they cannot be honest. The, the contrast is that when you're talking about patients who've had experienced harm or they've lost a child, you know, they have nothing to lose. You know, those fearless campaigners, um, you know, we see in maternity investigations, for example, you know, they have nothing to lose. So it, it, it's about fear. And, and that really leads into you know, what people are talking about now in terms of trying to achieve a, a just culture. Um, and in terms of describing a culture where trust enables reporting to occur with the focus of facilitating learning to drive safety improvement, you know, just culture is a good start. But actually, I, I think it's the minimum of what we need to transform the culture and people's experience of working in healthcare. Because for me, the crux is in people feeling safe not only to report error, but also to ask questions, to get feedback, to raise concerns. Psychological safety is becoming a bit of a buzz phrase, but it's really key, both at a team level and within organisations too. There's a lot of concern in the NHS about staffing and workforce with concern about burnout, the people really being at their limits and, and people leaving. And personally, I think things like yoga classes and resilience trainings, are, it's all pretty meaningless if, it's, if an organisation isn't really committed to getting the basics right in terms of creating an environment where people feel supported if things go wrong. Because no amount of yoga is going to make you feel better if the pressures you face at work mean that you see one of your colleagues hung out to dry for a mistake that could have been made by anyone else in the same circumstances. And I think that's why cases like Hadiza Bargaba's case gets so much support, because it speaks 
to the fear that everybody feels. The, the other thing about your approach, which which stands out and which I think has sometimes led to criticism, is this idea that we should understand that both patients and clinicians can feel upset, traumatized when things go wrong, wanting to try to avoid blame being the first instinct. But yet, for some people, that doesn't feel right. For them, what has happened is something blameworthy. It does reflect arrogance. It does reflect a power imbalance. In those debates, Susanna, that you've had, when you've encouraged us to understand how this feels from the clinician perspective and to recognize that blame probably doesn't help us to learn. You must understand, presumably, the perspective of those who say, well, that's all very well, but I am just enraged and I think that I have been mistreated. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, it's very important to say that, you know, the idea of a just culture is not without accountability. You know, reckless and negligent behavior should always be called out. You know, full stop. Um, yes, I am. I'm very lucky, I think, because I stayed away from the adversarial route, and I've been able to get to know so many brilliant, conscientious, kind, compassionate clinicians. So it's it's had a big impact on me. But I completely understand how people can become so cynical as I did. I you receive a letter which gives a version of events which is just not true. You get strong, visceral response to it. There's a very strong sense of injustice, of hurt, anger, because you've experienced harm and you're being wronged. And there are people who haven't had my subsequent experience, but instead have been trapped in a cycle of endlessly being stonewalled and, and even being blamed for what happened to them. You know, so I know mothers who have been blamed for their babies dying, people who've been to fitness to practice hearings, who've been cross-examined by a criminal barrister for two hours without support. And they're in an endless process of investigations going on for years it, with multiple different organizations and when people are put through, you know, that particular mill, and it, and it, it is about being ground down, um, they can end up bitter and, and angry because they lose trust in, in everyone. I'm interested in the questions of organisational culture because when we talk about events like the event that you experienced, we can often see it as a one-off. But, yeah, I think it's important, isn't it, to connect it to the broader organizational culture i'm making a program for radio 4 at the moment about bullying and actually the nhs is is a case study partly because actually the nhs is one of the few organizations that really has the data on it you know nearly one in five people in the nhs say they experience bullying in any given year most of it uh, from managers but actually almost as much from uh, colleagues and when you see that level i think what it reflects is a culture which has got two very strong characteristics. One is it's very hierarchical, and the other is that people are almost always working under pressure. And these two characteristics create the kind of culture in which people feel bullied, which is 
the kind of culture where people can't ask difficult questions, can't say to, if they're a junior member of staff, a more senior member of staff, are you sure we're doing the right thing or whatever? So how deep do you think the cultural change has to go? And and in answering that, Susanna, tell us more about this concept of just culture. It, it, it does have to go deep because it's both at a micro level within teams and at a macro level within organizations, as you've just indicated. Undoubtedly, authority plays a role and we need both managers and senior clinicians modeling the behavior we want to see. Yeah, the hierarchy can be exploited and that's when really unpleasant behaviors follow. So, for example, Yes, bullying, but also sexual harassment as well. And that's really come to the fore recently. And those negative behaviours might be the minority, but they they have a chilling effect on whole teams and even units. And I think the key point is that if any colleague doesn't feel psychologically safe and feels that others will undermine them or humiliate them, you immediately have a situation which is bad news for patient safety because there's no way that people will speak up. I think the good news is that people are much more aware of the impact of hierarchy now and there is this awareness that we need to move towards a a fairer way of handling things. I, I mean, I always tell trainees that no matter how senior they become, they have to be, they have to be behaving in ways that enable others to speak up. So you know, yes, there's the idea of what do you do after something's gone wrong, but you know, we've got to be further upstream from that and to be trying to get the behaviors which stop things going wrong in the first place. And I think that's where the concept of psychological safety then becomes really, really important. And it takes humility. I mean, I know an orthopedic surgeon who had some time off for health reasons, and when she went back into surgery, you know, she's simply sort of said, right, if you see me going to do anything stupid, please tell me, you know, because she's really inviting and giving other people voice and saying, like, I'm going to value your feedback. I, I want to run past you a, a theory that I've developed over the years. And um, uh, it goes back actually to a, a personal experience I had. So many, many years ago, I went to a kind of rather weird kind of group cognitive and behavioral therapy session run by an organization that was a bit cultish, to be honest. I wouldn't recommend it. But we, we were all there uh, together. There's about 100 of us in this room in central London being shouted at by a kind of charismatic Frenchman. And we were all there because we were either doing something we didn't ought to have been doing. You know, people were taking drugs or drinking too much or cheating on their partners, or we weren't doing things that we should have been doing. We weren't fulfilling ourselves. We weren't succeeding at work or whatever. So we're all there. Anyway, we spent the weekend and hardly eating and being shouted at, and it was all very intense. But at the end, we were asked to, to come up on stage and share our story. And what was fascinating was that almost everybody came up and said the same thing. They all said a version of the reason I do this or the reason I don't do this is because it's hard being me. And I derive from that an insight into cultures, which is that actually most organizations, this is why it's the cover-up 
that is often the problem, not the initial mistake, is because when something goes wrong, people often mobilize this story of how hard it is to be them. There's a kind of sense of, well, you know, I ought to recognize this and learn from it, admit to it. But, you know, it is so difficult being, I don't know, a police officer or a member of parliament or working in the NHS under this pressure that I, I, I shouldn't have to do that. And that's why I'm going to try to cover up or push it away. So I've come to the view that one of the things cultures need to do is to recognize that that story the story that gets mobilized when you have to choose between whether or not to face up to something and be honest about it and learn from it or instead try to kind of cover it up. Does that, does that have any resonance with you, Susanna? Yes. Yes, it does. Now, there's two angles on this. One is the fact that people are often asked to write down what happened and in doing so, I think you probably get the strongest demonstration of that pattern. And I think if you were, for example, to get people in the room without the charismatic Frenchman <laughs> to talk through what happened, and then suddenly you get, but but that happened. Oh, and, and so-and-so said that, and then such and such was happening over here. You know, like you get a build-up of a narrative which is being corrected within itself by the people who were there um you know as long as everybody there is motivated to be honest about it of course the other thing i would observe and this comes from my experience of working in schools and particularly at the time that i was starting out with the obstetric anaesthetist i was working at a very high performing school where a lot of the students went on to read medicine and i was actually working in their university's application team and uh, responsible for their their references and and you know hearing what they were wanting to do and I was meeting these really wonderful young people wanting to go into medicine you know brilliant bright highly motivated and I kind of started wondering what happens to them when things go wrong because you know you've got really bright young people who have come through the sciences, usually. You know, some people sort of breeze through the sciences and they find it all very easy. Some people have to work a bit harder, but the great thing is that if you do your work, you can get 100%. And, you know, it kind of breeds perfectionism. And you get people who will really be aiming for that because they don't want to be found lacking. And then they go into medicine, which is just the cruelest environment for perfectionism because they are working under time pressure. They are you know, responding to five calls on their attention at once. They may be without a full set of results. They may not have all of the information. You know, they can be making a decision for the least worst option rather than there being a best option. And that's really, really tough on them. And so one of the things I feel really strongly about is actually, you know, getting in with medical students and trainees young and pointing it out to them and kind of sort of highlighting all of our imperfection and being able to say, look, it is going to happen. Things will go wrong. So now what we want you to do is to start thinking about how you're going to respond when it does. And a lot of that is about reflection in, a, again, not writing it down, but to be able to just 
within themselves have the kind of intellectual and emotional curiosity to try and figure out, you know, what made something good, what could have been better, so that they're just better equipped to to manage these situations. And Susanna, how successful do you think you've been? How far have we got in changing the way in which we think about the way we educate medical students or indeed anybody in the health service, leaders, clinicians, and how we do training and development in the future? Do you, do you think that there is now a shift away from that kind of assumption of perfectionism, the assumption that there's always a simple distinction between the right and the wrong way to do things. Do you think that is changing? I think we're only just beginning. Because don't forget, you know, you've always got a new intake. So you, there is an element of always having to educate the next lot coming through. And because of the way medicine works with almost as soon as they're, they're through training, they become educators. And, you know, you've got but you've got people right the way up through you know, 40 years further down their career. So it, it takes quite a long time, I think, for, for knowledge to, to change sometimes. And do you think that the burnout that we see in the health service, and obviously that is to do with two years of COVID and the, the, the fact that we went into COVID with 100,000 vacancies, etc. But do you think that burnout is also partly to do with what you're describing, which is that people have been led to a set of expectations and then when things do go wrong, they don't see this as just part of the role and part of how you learn, but they somehow see this as a failing. And do you think that contributes to the number of people who now don't seem to want to stay in healthcare? So, yes, it's about, you know, so on the point about sort of personal failure, one of the things that I say to obstetric anaesthetists is that when they're testing the block, that it, it, it is the block, it's not their block. So there is a really instinctive sort of personalization of what they're doing. And so that can come back to, to haunt them. I, I think it also can mean that they're functioning with one hand tied behind their back in some senses, because it, it makes it harder to see when something isn't going right, if you're personally invested in it as opposed to being able to objectively say, this is what's going on right now. I need to move on to plan B because that plan A wasn't working. If you're really kind of invested because it's a personal thing, then you're more likely to fall into the traps of things like confirmation bias and fixation error, where people sort of continue going down one, the wrong track. In terms of burnout, yes, I think what you're saying is right. I think... We do have to understand the unrelenting pressure that people are under. And I think one of my frustrations is that politically, discussions on workforce tend to be about recruitment rather than retention, which is problematic when, you know, highly skilled people aren't readily available and training takes years. So to be sustainable, we've got to look after the people we've got and that very much comes down to the basics in my mind. So that's, you know, that is about creating an environment where people feel able to report, put feedback in. It means having an environment where they've got space to support one another. So, for example, 
you're in a lot of places, there's nowhere to have a coffee just away from the patients to be able to debrief one another. That's a massive impact on, on people's ability to support one another. And also you have to appreciate the changes that happen to rotors mean that you don't have the same sort of social cohesion that you used to have. I think that's had quite a big impact. And when you add into that, you know, the trainee experience of being moved around, you know, again and again at frequent intervals, you and I would know that moving jobs is very tough, you know, and it takes a little while to sort of settle in. But actually, you're asking these young people to do that again and again. And they may be a long way from home. They may have very little social support around them. Their hours mean that they can't maybe have the dog or join up with the local hockey club because they're, they're off duty when other people are working and they're working when other people are, you know, so it, that social isolation that people experience is really key in that bigger picture. And then final question, Susanna, is, is part of this also about the fact that still in the way in which the media represents particularly kind of fictional health situations, we still at core have this notion that it's all about the kind of heroic cure, the heroic act which leads somebody to eventually be able to walk out of hospital better again. And in fact, what that means is that on the one hand, people who have long-term complex conditions for whom health is part of the story, but actually it's much more also around the wider quality of life, that, that people with exactly the same level of acuity can have very different qualities of life to do with a whole range of other factors. And that if you're a, a doctor, you, you can only influence some of those things. You have to work with other people if you're going to influence the wider quality of life. Or on the other hand, palliative care, where you know, there is not going to be an heroic cure, but but yet a lot can be done to enable people to die with dignity. So is this part of the story as well about, about clinicians kind of recognising that that notion that they can do something which will mean that everything is okay, that, that, that often that just isn't the case? Yeah, I, I think, interestingly, most clinicians are quite uncomfortable with the hero label. There was a lot of it early on in COVID and the public putting them up on a pedestal from which they can only fall. And I think that isn't helpful to people because they don't feel like heroes. They're constantly, you know, afraid of things going wrong. It probably doesn't help in terms of expectations on them. And maybe that feeds around into what patients themselves can do towards their involvement in their health and so you know if you if you do have this kind of portrayal then it means that you to some extent patients it's it's another way in which patients can be sort of disengaged from their own health because it, it becomes perceived as you know kind of handing themselves over to be fixed so that then leads into a much longer term thing of you know, of wanting to get patients more involved and engaged. You know, I mean, I was speaking to a consultant recently who works in epilepsy and and particularly with regard to you know, sort of teenagers who were transitioning from pediatric into adult 
care. And, and she was saying, well, you know, she always asks them to bring her three questions every time they come to see her. And I thought it was the most lovely thing because what she's doing is that she's training them up to become active participants in their care. Because, because you know, when, particularly when you're talking about long-term complex healthcare needs, each healthcare interaction is not a one-off because it's part of a continuous thing. And within that, every contact that they make with healthcare leaves a trace, which is why trust is incredibly important. But of course, you know, people will be most engaged in their healthcare if they feel involved in it. I, I absolutely agree. And I think there's enormous scope in the years ahead to engage patients more actively. And we saw during COVID, didn't we, how we all got used to diagnosing ourselves at home, for example. And, um, and the challenge is that that process where we personalise healthcare, we empower people more in healthcare, has got to be one, and this goes back to a point you made earlier, Susanna, that doesn't exacerbate inequalities by empowering those who already have the confidence, but empowering those who may need the most support to become partners in their healthcare. Look, Susanna, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Thank you for all the work that you've done and that you're doing. And thank you for joining me on Health on the Line. Thank you. As a reminder, this episode of Health on the Line is part of a series of activities NHS Confederation is undertaking in collaboration with NHS Supply Chain, focusing on the subject of patient safety. And there's an accompanying briefing and webinar available on the Confed's website. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast. And save the date for NHS Confed Expo, the premier event in the health and care calendar, taking place on the 15th and 16th of June 2022 in Liverpool.